please remain standing with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Well, I'm going to invite Ron Friesen. If, give him a hand. He's uh, <laughs> going to be speaking for us today. Um, I've gotten to know Ron over the last year. He has actually uh, served as my spiritual director for the last year. So just about a year ago, I reached out to Ron and said, Ron, I need help. And he said, I got you, fam. <laughs> it wasn't quite like that, but. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Similar. Uh, but yeah, Ron and I have, have, uh, have been meeting just once a month for the last year or so, and he has been a gift to me. The Lord has blessed me and helped me tremendously through Ron. Um, and so I thought it would be awesome to have him come. You know. Uh, we've the last couple of months we've had a bunch of people from Door of Hope Southeast coming and guest preaching, which has been wonderful. But it's also super exciting to have men and women from other churches in the area, kind of from outside the Door of Hope family, come and give us something a little bit different. I think, and so actually we've got an exciting array of folks about once a month through the end of the year from other churches, and Ron is the first of those. Um, your spiritual director, you've been a worship pastor. You're about to go for another stint. Uh, outside of Paris as a interim pastor? the south of France. In south Toulouse. of France. Yes. It's a good gig if you can get it, I, I contend. <laughs> um, so we're honored that you would give us some of your time before you and your wife head, over, head overseas. So thank well, you so much for being here. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah. It really is. Thank you. Thank I'm going to shut up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but not for too long. Well, it's really good to be here. I have uh, really enjoyed the conversations that Cameron and I have had together. He blesses me as much as I hopefully bless him, and we're learning how to listen to the voice of God a little better together. Uh, it's good to be in this space. Uh, my wife, Lisa, over there, who's quite creative, really has been enraptured by what you've done with this place. Uh, it's, it's just a wonderful meeting, gathering place in which to meet with each other and with God. What a gift. 
it's good to also make some uh, reconnections with people from the past, like Joel Lowe over there. Back in the late 90s, he and I were colleagues involved in different church planning projects here in the city. So it was good to catch up a bit with Joel. And then Jeremy, I mean, I had no idea he was going to be here, uh, but he was like 10, 11, 12 when I first moved to Salem uh, to be the worship pastor at the church that he and his family were attending. I moved down from British Columbia. And uh, what a treat. What a treat to see God's faithfulness in your life and the life of your parents. Thanks for leading us so well in worship. I've heard good things about this community of faith. And uh, I just hope that my words, actually God's word through me to you today, will affirm you, encourage you, and help you in your journeys individually as well as collectively as this church body. A little bit about me. I'm a Canadian, now Canadian-American, who grew up in the province of Manitoba in a German-speaking Mennonite church tradition. German was actually my first language. I opened up my life to Jesus when I was nine or ten, but my connection to him took on deeper meaning for me in my last years of high school as he helped me overcome significant sexual uh, obsession and, and acting out, and also as he carried me through the shock of losing my dad uh, due to a massive heart attack when he was 46 and I was 16. I would describe my spiritual journey as one from legalism to grace, from narrowness to breadth, from rigidness to freedom, and from believing right and doing right to just becoming, becoming my truest self in Christ. Before I attended seminary, I was a vocal performance and music ed major. And so I've spent some time teaching private music lessons and also I've been an elementary and junior high school music teacher. I love writing and making music. Uh, I love cycling, kayaking, skating, skiing, traveling, good food, and believe it or not, yard work. I like working in the yard. (laughs) I served on the pastoral staff of a few churches up and down the coast here from British Columbia down into California, and I was lead pastor of Trinity International Church in Paris for about four years in the mid-2000s. Just after getting back from that term of service, uh, my wife was discovered to have brain surgery, or brain tumor, went through surgery, chemo treatments, and ultimately uh, passed away in 2010. I have two grown children who live here in the Pacific Northwest, and I am the grandfather to a smart, athletic, darling, almost three-year-old girl named Clara Rose. You can tell I'm a little biased. As Cameron already mentioned, uh, this past year I've been spending uh, three-month stints in Toulouse, France, serving as an interim pastor for another international church there. They're almost to the point of calling their next long-term pastor, so uh, when Lisa and I go back now in mid-September, it'll probably be the last time we we go to help them out. And it's been a real privilege, because international churches are such a unique 
snapshot of the kingdom of God. Here you have people coming from all over the world, different native languages, uh, united by uh, English speaking and faith in Christ, or at least interest in Christ. And uh, it's, it's such a glorious community of faith to be a part of. I hope you get that experience sometime. The church is made up of oh, a lot of Indian folk, uh, a lot of people from former French West Africa, uh, of course Europeans, smattering of uh, Latin Americans, smattering of North Americans, uh, just a real privilege to be there. And if you think of us, pray that our ministry will be effective in this next three-month stint. So why am I telling you this? Why did I take this time? I think it's really important for you to know a bit about the person who's teaching God's Word. Uh, because we all speak out of a context. And uh, you have your story. I have mine. And if I tell you parts of mine, you'll be more willing to tell me parts of yours. And our, our relationship has a chance of uh, beginning and developing and deepening. I think it's really important for, you know, preacher dudes to be more open about their lives. And I'm so grateful for Cameron in the example he is setting to you about the vulnerability, the openness, and the authenticity of his life. That's a gift to you, and I know you feel safer in being more authentic with him and with each other because of it. May that continue. That's God's intention for his people. So on to today's message taken from the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. I've titled it, Glimpses of God in the Worst of Places. Glimpses of God in the Worst of Places. As I mentioned earlier, I have this great granddaughter. My iPhone and my computer are filled with photos and video clips of her that my son regularly sends me. And if you spend enough time viewing them, uh, you would start getting an idea of what my granddaughter is like, a bit of her personality, her love, the things that make her go wow, the things that make her cry. Even though they're just little glimpses, you would start getting an idea. And we have that uh, same opportunity today as we consider who God is as glimpsed in the third chapter of Jonah. We get to see a few snapshots of him in this most unusual story that uh, show us a bit about his great and compelling character. So what's the first snapshot? We find it immediately in verse 1. Verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I'll repeat it again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Here we see that God gives us repeated opportunities for change. He gladly gives all of us repeated opportunities for life change. Jonah's given another opportunity to embrace God and his purposes after he rejected God's call the first time. God's repeating the original call to him. And as with Jonah, God is calling to each of us repeatedly, to humanity in general, often softly, sometimes rather loudly, 
but a call to embrace Him and His good purposes for our lives. Jesus' treatment of Peter after uh, Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection is a good example of this. Uh, after the resurrection, Jesus gives Peter three chances to reaffirm his love for Christ after he had just denied him three times prior to the crucifixion. And as with Peter, Jesus keeps asking us, in spite of our repeated failures, do you love me? And he gives us a chance to reaffirm, to come back to continue the walk with him. And as with those who crucified Christ, he responds to our repeated sin by saying, Father, forgive them, for they just don't know what they're doing. That's good news. That's really good news. I think of David, the king of Israel, who wrote the Psalms and was called a man after God's own heart. How could that be? I mean, you know a bit about David, don't you? Uh, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had uh, her husband killed to cover up that act. Uh, he had a, a rather dysfunctional family filled with a lot of drama. How could a guy like this be called a man after God's own heart? Well, it's not that David never failed. It's just that he kept coming back to God when he did fail because he believed that God gives us repeated chances for change. According to Psalm 103, he was convinced that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, that he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. This is our God. That God is still this way. And God will always be this way. Pastor and author uh, Dane Ortland is another person who is profoundly affected by the mercy of God. And in his book, which I recommend heartily, Gentle and Lowly, he writes, and we have it on the screen here. God is not tight-fisted with his mercy, but open-handed. Not frugal, but lavish. Not poor, but rich. It means that things that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. I love that phrase. It means that things that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. Is that your view of God? Has that been your experience of God? This God who gives us repeated opportunities for change. I've already mentioned that in my high school years, uh, my adolescence was filled with sexual obsession and acting out. I'm so grateful, eternally grateful, for God offering me repeated opportunities for change and for the power of His Holy Spirit to help me develop self-control and experience freedom in my life. God is so good. He is so patient. He is so prone to hug us hard when we feel most cringy. Well, let's uh, look at a second glimpse of God as seen in this story. 
We find it in verses 2 and 3, but I'll start again reading at verse 1. And this is the glimpse. God is never overwhelmed by the worst. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. We'll stop there. There's a lot of speculation about the size and population of Nineveh. Uh, but this can be confidently said. It was the capital of Assyria, a superpower led by violent and haughty and prosperous people. Uh, they were living in the biggest empire of the day. Cameron already has given you some background in the first sermon in this series. Nineveh grew to be the largest city in the world for about 50 years prior to it being overrun in 612 B.C. It had a population of 120,000, some say as high as 600,000, uh, depending or not whether we would include some of the surrounding smaller cities that were nearby. Uh, much like, you know, when we talk about Portland, people who live in Gresham say, I, I live in Portland, people who live in Hillsboro, they get counted in the greater metro area, you know, that kind of a thing. I think that was what was going on. Um, Nineveh sat across from the Tigris River from modern-day Mosul in uh, Iraq. And here it's said to be a great city, three days' journey in breadth. What does that mean? Well, again, a lot of discussion and disagreement among archaeologists and biblical scholars, but uh, one plausible way of uh, considering this is that Three days is what it might have taken uh, Jonah to visit each part of the city to preach this message of impending judgment. Or, just like we say, you know, that river is a mile wide and an inch deep, uh, it, it could have been a popular idiom just to explain great size. But whatever, Nineveh was a big place a cultured place, yet also a very tough and mean place. Think of Moscow, Beijing, London, Paris, New York, New Delhi, Lagos, and other major cities around the world. Impressive places, powerful places, yet also very, very dark places, filled with confusion, injustice, and violence. They're overwhelming, but not for God. God is never overwhelmed by any person, any situation, any location, any event, because he's bigger and supremely capable for anything. Think of Portland now. Think of this city. Think of your neighborhood in it. Think about your place where you live. Think about your life and the darkness that you face there. Because we all have these smaller spheres of darkness, if you will, that we're dealing with. No matter how dark this city, our neighborhood, our home, our extended family, our personal lives might be, God is not absent, but He's present, doing His work, 
calling in the worst of places. I'm going to quote Ortland again. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. Right there. And his heart for you. Not on the other side of it, but in that darkness, in that darkness, is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. Do we really believe that in those deepest, darkest places of this city, our neighborhood, in the deepest, darkest places of our personal lives, that God is willingly and actively and lovingly there? He's not waiting up for us to somehow get out of that environment, successfully deal with that darkness, the worst of it all. No. He is so intent on being there with us so he, can so he can do his redeeming work. We see another glimpse of God and his way of doing things as we move on to verses 4, and four through 8. And here we see that God uses our repentance for the good of others. He multiplies it. He amplifies it. Let's uh, read verses 4 through 8. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of God believed him. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Jonah repents. He starts preaching the message that God gave him in this large, dark, violent city. And notice how his repentance gets amplified and leads to the good much good for many people. It's like a couple of life-giving drops of water released from a faucet by just one person. That would be Jonah. And then those drops become a small stream in the repentant response of the first Ninevites. You know, who was the first guy or who was the first gal who said, yeah, I, yeah, I got to do something about this message. And me too, and oh, you too, me too. It, it gets amplified. It becomes a small stream in this growing repentant response of people. And this stream becomes an ever-widening yet gentle river as this grassroots movement spreads throughout the city. Then it becomes an expanding, nourishing lake that reaches royalty and through the king's edict affects an entire region and blesses it. 
all because one person's willingness to repent, and that was Jonah. And so it can be with us. Think of what might be set in motion in this church, in this neighborhood, in this city, as you and I, as God's people, say yes to him in new, deeper, significant ways. But you might say, you don't know me and my worst. You don't know this city and its worst. You don't know my neighborhood and its worst. (coughs) Excuse me. However, we've already seen that God is never overwhelmed by the worst. Through Christ, he redeems and transforms the worst in people to bring about his coming kingdom for the good of everyone. Remember the great heroes of faith described for us, named for us in Hebrews 11? People that we're told to respect and follow. Among them are Noah, a drunkard. Abraham, who tries to pass off his wife Sarah as his sister and offers her to a a king as they pass through his territory so he can save his own skin. Later on, his wife Sarah orders Hamar, her slave, to sleep with her husband so they can have this child that God abstentionally promised them. Think of Jacob. He's mentioned there as well. He deceives his father to rob his older brother of his blessing as the oldest child. Moses is mentioned, a murderer, before he becomes the leader in redeeming uh, Israel from the grips of Egypt. Rahab, a prostitute. Gideon, an idol maker who believes that God has forsaken his people. Samson, a womanizer. And David, who we've already talked about. David's not the kind of guy you would necessarily vote to be on the church elder team, would you? But it's of these people that it's written. The world was not worthy of them. Can you believe it? The world was not worthy of these people? It's been that way throughout history. It's been that way throughout history. God seems to love reaching into the the most unlikely of situations, turning things around and causing great good, reaching into broken, apparently hopeless lives and doing amazing things through his redemptive work. I think of John Newton, the writer of uh, the hymn Amazing Grace, former slave trader, came to know God in a deeper way, repented from that kind of activity in his life, ended up being a minister, and writing this song that keeps being sung the world over. I just led a memorial service so about a month ago for the mother of a good friend of my son's down in Salem. I'm not quite sure where she stood in her relationship with God. A very, uh, a person very, very interested in the spiritual and yet not necessarily 
in Jesus. So uh, in, in the memorial service that was there, uh, one of the sons led a Hopi prayer. Uh, other things were said that, you know, I would say weren't in line with who Jesus is and what he's all about. But Amazing Grace was sung. Amazing Grace was sung. And the opportunity for light to shine into that situation was amplified. God loves, God loves to use our repentance to bring good into the worst of places. I'm reminded of John and Jane, a couple who are part of our church family in Salem. When I first met them, they wanted to see me uh, because their marriage was in a lot of stress. Uh, she was a new believer. He was not yet a Christian. And uh, I told them as a pastor, I would see them for a few sessions before recommending a therapist to them. And uh, as we talked, I'd say it was the second time we talked, uh, she, she said to her husband, you know, your use of porn, something's got to change. It's really, really bugging me. And he said to her, yeah, I, I'm sure. And I, f I feel so guilty and ashamed and low, unworthy every time I admit it to you. And then something changed. She said, I can only imagine how hard it must be for you to admit this to me. I'm so sorry. And he said, and I can only imagine how this hurts you to hear this as often as you have. And I figured, all right, we're making progress. God's at work. Things are going to change. And they have. She's a nurse by profession, but now she's a uh, seminary student studying spiritual direction, interested actually being a parish nurse in church settings that actually have parish nurses. He now helps lead a ministry in the church, uh, encouraging guys to face their sexual addictions and to live lives of greater sexual integrity. I mean, it's awesome. Their repentance is beginning to multiply and affect and encourage others. We have one more glimpse of God and how he relates to us. And that is this. He's full of both grace and truth. One does not negate the other. Notice how the king of Nineveh concludes his proclamation. In verse 9, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. And now notice God's response. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Because God is holy and just, he is steadily, has been steadily working towards a world with no evil. But because he's infinite in his love, he's very sensitive to every sign of humble repentance that he sees, and he's quick to respond with grace, mercy, and forgiveness every time. That's his nature. Let's go back to David's experience as recorded in Psalm 103. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We see this most clearly and most fully realized through Jesus Christ, described as having no sin, yet who took on our sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Pastor and author Brian Zand likes to say, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. And there's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now... We do. As an author, he has such a pithy way of putting things. Let's read it together. God is like Jesus. I'm not hearing you. Let's try it again. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. John the disciple in John 1.14 says it this way, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. God is like Jesus. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. Do you remember the way he treated the Samaritan woman as recorded in John chapter 4? They're having this conversation about water, living water, and eventually he mentions um, uh, the man she's living with and uh, how he, this man's not her husband. She's had a number of husbands. And, and so the conversation continues, and she becomes just dumbfounded, not by what he knew about her life, but his acceptance of her knowing what he knew about her. That is our God. He knows everything about us, the dark, the worst, the best, the strong, the weak. And he loves. And he's interested. So when she went back to her town, she couldn't help but say, come see this man who told me everything I ever did. It wasn't that knowledge of all those facts. It was his acceptance of her with all those facts that just blew her mind. This is our God. This is our God. A while back, I was propositioned by a guy. And uh, when he found out I was straight, 
and a pastor. Uh, somehow his family, the fact that he was cheating on his wife, his wife and kids knew nothing about this part of his life. He was so mortified. He was so embarrassed. And I said, before we leave, you probably would never expect to hear this from a straight guy who's a preacher. But when you're at your lowest, I hope you remember one thing. God is always interested in you. Always. He drove away, tears streaming down his face. And I pray that he never forgets that little glimpse of God. A God who gives us repeated opportunities for change. A God who's never overwhelmed by the worst, by our worst. A God who uses our repentance for the good of others. And a God who's full of both grace and truth. So where do we go from here? A few ideas. I hope we courageously face our worst places. If, if you leave here today with more openness to, to face the worst places in your life, I would be really, really grateful. Because we cannot be healed from what we will not name. And what we do not face will continue to hold us in its grip. Secondly, I would hope that you could expect to encounter our merciful God in that dark place, in that worst of places, in that weak place, in that less than ideal place. We all want to be known for who we truly are, yet we desperately feel fear being known for who we truly are, because what do we fear? Rejection. Yet God is not like that. And Jonah and his encounter with the people of Nineveh and their repentance bears that out. Thirdly, in faith, receive his grace and mercy so we have something to give away. Unless we've met God in the deepest, darkest, worst spots in our lives, all we can talk about is Bible facts and Jesus' words. But when we've met and experienced the living God in those places, now we have something profound to share. Something that a thirsty, hungry world can't really dispute. And then prayerfully look for opportunities to display God in the worst of places, whether it's where you work, your neighborhood, your extended family with all those crazy relatives. Look for opportunities to display God in the worst of places. Because God, when God truly is able to show himself, he's always better than what we expected. He's always better than what others think. For he's good. 
He's infinitely great in every respect, and he's unbelievably loving. Portland needs mercy as much as Nineveh did. You and I need mercy as much as Jonah did. Mercy, God withholding the judgment we rightfully deserve. Grace, giving to us what we don't deserve. Someone has said, grace is what love looks like when it meets imperfection. Grace is what love looks like when it meets imperfection. And that is our God, full of love, grace, and mercy.